I was hearing something. You heard it too? I'm not crazy? Okay. All right. So, uh, super important Sunday, incredibly important Sunday, uh, I think, for the life of, of this church. Uh, but before we get into the message uh, for the day, I just wanted to thank everyone. For those of you who have been praying and congratulating my wife and I, we did have our third child. Um, so, got a, got a little picture. Um, so we named, it's a, it's a son, it's a boy, it's, we named him Micaiah, and just to remove an awkward moment, actually remove two awkward moments really quick. One, um, you can tell, I have a cold, I sound different, so you know, it's, it's kind of, it's, depending upon the personality you have, I, I, I'm annoyed when someone like is talking, I have to listen to someone for a long time and their voice doesn't sound right, it's like that's not them. So look, you're going to have to deal with it for the next hour and 40 minutes. Um, actually, today, uh, you can ask Drew Dowler, today's a record record short sermon. Real quick, to the point. Uh, so, mm, yeah, don't cheer. <laughs> don't cheer. Uh, so, yeah, I just got it. I got it. We got, my whole family got, like, sick, like, since day one uh, of new baby. But this new baby is, uh, sleeps way better than the other two. So, that's, that's good. Or it's just because it's the third one, and th- you know, you just You know, your first kid, you wake up and every minute to check if it's breathing. To, serious, I did at least. I was like, within 30 seconds, that thing would be now. I was like, and then when it was, it's breastfeeding, it's like, it's nose is smashed. How can it, it's, you're going to suffocate. It's going to die by eating. Uh, you get a third one, man. You just get a little Velcro jacket and some Velcro on the wall and stick them on it. And, uh, so yeah, it's less than a week old. I don't know when he came. My, the whole week has been crazy. Um, he's experiencing the joys, of his, the joys of life. That's his uh, brother and sister. So he's getting the good stuff of life, but I also wanted to expose him to, you know, the, the brokenness and fallenness of this world. So I showed him a picture of the cursed beast, a chihuahua, and this was, uh, <laughs> said not having it, not having it, uh, not at all, not having it. <clears throat> okay. Super important Sunday. And uh, we're actually all, so this is more people than I thought. Memorial Day is uh, typically in the church calendar a low attended Sunday. And we had tons of graduations going on yesterday too. uh, And that always affects things. So typically in the year, this is one of the lowest attended Sundays. So uh, if you know people who aren't here, tell them to please listen online um, to the message. I think it's it's, it's important and formative for our church. We're going to be talking about Communion. And just briefly, there's a lot of different words that are used for communion. So depending upon a tradition that you were brought up in a church you went to, you might know it as the Eucharist, uh, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, the Last Supper. There's like all these different words. But what we're talking about is this sacrament, this thing that Jesus instituted where he takes bread and wine, a cup, and says, these things now represent my body and my blood, my body broken for you, and my blood spilled for you. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. So we're talking about that meal. We call it communion, but there's different terms that people use. Now, what I'm going to do today is lay out the theological landscape, and then give a historical backdrop, and then get into some real practical, important stuff for our church. Um, In the theological landscape, there's going to be... It's, it might sound confusing at first because there's going to be a bunch of big words that, like, you, you, like I couldn't even spell them. They're so big. It's like 
you know, how many syllables you clap. It's just like you just lost count. They're so big. Uh, but I promise I'll make it uh, succinctly. We'll make it make sense and go from there. But we have to have the theological background. So what I'd like to do is start with that and discuss the three major views that are out there when it comes to communion. See, there's the scary, scary stuff. Transubstantiation, consubstantiation, and thank God the third one is just symbolic. That's pretty easy. Symbolic or memorial view. The first view, called transubstantiation, this is the view that's held by the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church believes that when you come together and eat the elements, the bread and the wine, that when the priest performs the sacrament, that the bread and the wine become the literal body and blood of Jesus. That's the thing when you hear transubstantiation, think transform. The bread and the cup literally transform by miraculous hand of God to become the literal body and blood of Jesus. <clears throat> so as you take it, you are eating the body and blood of Christ himself. That's the Catholic view, transubstantiation. The Lutheran view is called consubstantiation. And if you were raised Lutheran, you probably didn't hear the word consubstantiation. Everyone else calls this view consubstantiation, but Lutherans call it um, sacramental union. So if you grew up in a Lutheran church, you didn't hold to the Catholic church's view. It was, it was a little different, it was more nuanced. And you have an advantage here if you speak Spanish. The first syllable in that is con, with. Consubstantiation says that the bread and the wine stay bread and wine, but when you perform the sacrament, the body and blood of Christ are near, around, under, in every area around those elements. So it's not that the bread and wine literally become the flesh of Christ, but that God performs a miracle so that there's a union, and the body and blood of Christ are now with the elements. So in a sense, you're still eating the body and blood of Christ, but you're not seeing the bread and the wine transformed into it. You could say that doesn't sound like that big of a difference. Hey, in church history, Christians tend to make a big difference out of everything. So there's been a lot of debate about this. The third view is called the symbolic memorial view. And this says that when Jesus says, this is my body broken for you, speaking of the bread, he doesn't mean that literally, he's using the bread as a symbol. And when he says, this is my blood for the cup, the wine, doesn't mean that literally he's saying it symbolically. And in doing that, it's like a memorial. You're remembering <clears throat> what Jesus has done symbolically. Now, if you've been coming here, which view do we hold to, do you think? <clears throat> yeah, symbolic memorial. And just so you don't get scared, we're not changing <clears throat> what we think today. But what I want to do is I want to change our understanding of the symbolic view. Because... Oftentimes, many churches, and I am convinced this church, in our desire to emphasize the symbolic view over and against the other views, we diminish the weight and value of what is actually taking place when we have communion. And so what I'd like to do is elevate our understanding of communion while maintaining the symbolic view. And so in order to do that, we gotta talk a little bit of history and then we're gonna get into some practical stuff. Okay, a little bit of history about communion. First thing you need to know is that for the vast majority of Christians who have ever lived on God's good green earth, they took communion every Sunday. I mean, it was universal in all branches of Eastern Orthodox, Coptic Christians, Catholic Christian, Protestant Christians, universally, almost every Christian who has ever 
claimed to follow Jesus took communion every Sunday. It wasn't until relatively recently that the sort of maybe once a quarter or once a month kind of thing came in view. I mean, most churches in the world are, are less than 50 people, and most churches throughout history are, have been small. So as churches got bigger, there was more prag- pragmatic and logistical issues with communion. So rather than trying to do it and implement it every single week, many churches switched it up, and you do once a month or once a quarter, or some places have special communion services to that only the members are invited to go to. But the point is, it was normal standard practice for the majority of Christians who have lived to take communion every Sunday. It was a regular rhythmic routine. Think of like pledging allegiance. I've been told that, I was shocked, I've been told that most like elementary school still you pledge of allegiance at the beginning of the day. Well, you pledge allegiance and you do this rhythmic kind of regular, regular activity and so you memorize the words. What happens when you don't do the pledge of allegiance? You forget the words, or maybe you even remember the words, but you just know the words. You forget the meaning and value behind that pledge. And so communion for believers was a regular rhythmic routine where you came and aligned yourself and pledged your allegiance and confessed your sins to King Jesus. Second, historically, it was always for believers. In fact, the earliest Christian document that we have outside of the New Testament is called the Didache from roughly 90 AD. In it, they give rules for communion, and one of the rules says that you are only to give communion to baptized believers. Now, that's not in the Bible, so we wouldn't enforce that. We would serve communion to someone who isn't baptized. But I'm bringing up this historical note to demonstrate this that the early church clearly saw communion as something for people who confessed Jesus. And I say that, so if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, when we take communion, don't don't feel awkward about it. Just don't let it pass by. Don't, you know, it's not a big deal. Because I know it's awkward if you're not a Christian or you're new, if you're exploring and like a little cup comes behind me, you go, I'm supposed to do, I'm supposed to take this? No, just don't, just let it pass. And if you want to talk more about following Jesus, we'd love to talk to you about that. But the early church saw it as something for believers, and the way they kind of marked off non-believers was baptism. They just said, hey, we can't prove or check anyone. We don't know everyone's heart, so if you're baptized, you can take it. If not, don't, don't worry about it. Third, there's near universal agreement from the early church leaders that communion was spiritual food. When we come together as Christians and you worship God, when you hear his word taught, when you read his word, when you take communion, there is a spiritual nourishment that is occurring. Some of you might have heard like a really good sermon. You go, man, I was fed by that. And it's a metaphor, but in a sense, you mean it literally. You just don't mean it like you got physical food. You got spiritual nourishment, spiritual food. Communion is a spiritual food. It's where you remember what Christ has done for you and you pledge your allegiance into the future. Fourth and lastly, it was confessional. When the early church took upon the communion meal, they would always confess their sins beforehand. You can confess your sins to one another or to, to God in your head or maybe to one other person, but confession of sin was central in taking the communion elements. Now, why is this? It's really important. It is not because they thought that 
if I sinned on Tuesday and I didn't tell God about it and I die somehow, then I'm in trouble because I have unforgiven sin and I'm going to hell. That wasn't the point. You confess sins to one another because it's good for your soul. And then two, when you remember the cross of Christ in communion and you confess your sins, you are doing what you did the first day you trusted Jesus. The first day you put your faith in Jesus, you became a Christian, you confess your sins and trusted him for forgiveness. And so what communion does on a weekly rhythmic level is it lets you sort of relive again your born-again experience, relive again the first time you trusted Jesus. It's like a wedding vow renewal. It's not like you're getting married again. It's not like you need to get saved again or you need to have your sins forgiven again. You are going through the drama of sins being given to Jesus and being forgiven and receiving that grace. You need to do that regularly. So it's it's a way to to relive and reenact what has already occurred. Baptism is similar. Sam talked about this last week. Baptism is is a reenactment, a drama, physically, what God has done spiritually. Okay, now with that backdrop laid, if you've grown up uh, in the church, you've been a Christian a while, and you go to a church like this where they believe the sacraments are symbols, you've probably heard something along the lines of, hey, don't be too stressed out about this. It's not something spooky or anything. It's just a symbol. Raise your hand if you've heard, like, communion, hey, it's just a symbol. You heard that phrase, it's just a symbol. And in one sense, that's absolutely right. It's just a symbol. But in another sense, it couldn't be more wrong. Because yes, it's just a symbol, but it's not just a symbol. Symbols stand in place of something. They represent something. A symbol stands in place for something else. And when we talk about sacramental symbols or the bread and the cup, they are standing in place of the reality of God. Symbols are just symbols, but in and of themselves, they do have meaning, power, and the ability to move you. <clears throat> Give you a couple examples. <clears throat> Excuse me, sorry. Um, let's think of a photograph. A photograph is just an image, right? It's just an image. But let's say you were a six-year-old boy, and your father died in combat in the armed forces. And then a few years later, another tragedy happened and your house burned down. And somehow, by a miracle, one photo of your father remained. And now as you grow up, you have one picture of your father in his uniform, about to be deployed. Now, when you look at that photo, it's not just a photo. You look at that and you remember what it stands in place of. Let's extend it even further. Let's say you're having a ridiculously hard day and, you know, your marriage is on the rocks, your kids are crazy, and you just lost your job. And you go into your room and you pull out the photo of your dad in his uniform and you remember that he gave his life to give you the life that you have. And in that moment, you say, I'm going to work on this marriage. I'm going to help my kids. I'll find another job. I'm going to make this happen. 
the picture inspired you. But it was just a picture, but it stood in place for something that actually had the power to move you. Another example, wedding ring. Uh, a wedding ring is not your, your marriage. So if you lose your wedding ring, it's not like your marriage falls apart. But if you lose your wedding ring, you don't just say, ah, oh, it's just my wedding ring, no big deal, it's just a ring. You see, it, it matters, it means something, it represents something, it's standing in place. Your marriage will not fall apart if you lose that wedding ring. Now, it might cause some extra friction with your spouse if you carelessly lost that. The Hollister service, someone uh, confessed as a part of the process that they had lost their wedding ring five times. That might, that might, you might lose your marriage. You might lose it. Or picture the American flag. Have you ever attended a funeral of a veteran or attended the funeral of someone who was killed in combat? What do they do? The other servicemen and women come, they play taps, and they take out the American flag, and they have a special way they fold it, and they present it to mom, dad, spouse. Let me tell you, when there's a man who died in combat, and he left behind his wife and two kids, and they hand that flag to that woman, and she's weeping, it's not just a flag. It stands for the values of our people, for the sacrifices made. It's not just a flag. So when we say something like, we believe the communion elements, the bread and the cup are just symbols, they're not just symbols. Paul the Apostle gives a warning to people who would take communion elements improperly. And in the warning, he, he hits on exactly what we're talking about. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now verse 27 is the, the key. Did you catch it? Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the bread and the cup. No. When you take the bread and cup in an unworthy manner, you will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. You don't sin against the cracker or the bread or the juice or the wine. If you take it in an unworthy manner, your sin is against the thing that the symbol stands in place of. In this case, Christ himself. And so you know how serious this is. After a few verses later, Paul says, yeah, and there's been people who have been doing this unworthy manner thing so long that they've fallen asleep. And in New Testament language, that means they died. They died. Like, God straight up, like, took them out. Now, so you know, it's not like they were just, oh, I'm so busy, and they take it. I mean, the unworthy manner in Corinth was pretty bad. They were getting drunk and cheating in line and not waiting for people. I mean, like if most of you aren't going to do that, so we don't have to worry about, but do you feel the weight and the gravity? You come to this with proper reverence and worship. So yes, it's just a symbol, but it's also more than a symbol. 
What communion does is it's a way for us to do three things. One, we remember. That's what Jesus tells us to do. We remember. And two, what we talked about, we confess. And then three, when Paul talks about communion, he says that we're supposed to do it until Jesus returns. So it's a way of, he says, it's a way to proclaim Christ until he returns. It's this ongoing proclamation. In other words, it's a way for us to confess, remember, and then pledge our ongoing allegiance to the king. Communion is confession, remembrance, and it's pledging allegiance to the world's rightful king, namely Jesus. Now, there's some other elements to communion that we have to understand. Communion takes a present event and smashes both the past and the future into it. It has like a gravitational pull. There's a center point in the present, and past and future come rushing into the middle. A wedding example will illustrate this again. When you are married, it is a present event that brings the future into the present. What do I mean by that? Wedding ceremonies, you get all these witnesses together, and you make a promise. Two people, a man and a woman make a promise to one another. They say, we're going to be faithful till death do us part. Now, what is occurring? You have someone in the present declaring that for the rest of their entire life, they will remain faithful. The future days and events have not yet occurred, but you're declaring in the present before witnesses ongoing future faithfulness. Till all of my days are done, I will be faithful to you. You look them in the eyes and make that promise. You are declaring future reality, future faithfulness, and you're declaring the present for witnesses. Communion is a present activity, a present event that takes the past and future and brings it to the center. Paul says that, and Jesus says, you do this to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood spilled for you. That is a past event 2,000 years ago. That is not ongoing. There is one sacrifice once and for all at the cross of Christ. And what you're doing in communion is you are remembering that, confessing your sins, and reliving the grace that has been given to you. You're reminding yourself of his mercy, his love, and his forgiveness. You are also, as Paul says, proclaiming Jesus until he returns. So you are saying, we are going to keep doing this, keep doing communion, keep pledging our loyalty till he returns. And that future might not even be in your lifetime. The wedding was till death do us part. But for 2,000 years, Christians have been declaring this. And so communion rushes past, present, and future together in a single event. Communion puts one foot in the past and the right foot in the future and says, today, now, I need grace, forgiveness, spiritual food, and I declare to you, Jesus, my allegiance. That's, that's, that is powerful symbolism. It's just a symbol, but it's not just a symbol. Secondly, just as communion brings past, present, and future together, communion slams heaven and earth together. Now, make it, we've got to be clear on this. We do not believe the communion elements become the literal body and blood of Christ. We don't believe that. However, when God's people gather to worship Him, 
to hear his word, to take communion. We believe God is here. Now, in one sense, there's, there's a big word, omnipresence. It means God is everywhere, and that's true. So God is always everywhere. But that doesn't mean there's a special type of presence. When you become a Christian, you get filled with the Holy Spirit. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That is a different type of presence of God in your life than omnipresence. And so when God's people gather to worship, to sing, to read the Word, and to take communion, when we do this act every Sunday, God is here in a profound, significant way. Even if you're not aware of it, even if you're blind to it, even if you take it for granted. Make no mistakes, friends. The Lord is among you today. The Lord is among you. He is with us. He is near. He is close. The time and space that we occupy right now is holy, sacred, significant time and space. It's God's people gathered around his name for his glory. And so when Christ's presence is here, his kingdom is overlapping with the earthly kingdoms. And so heaven and earth meet when God's saints gather, past, present, and future come together. And when we do this, we center ourselves on the cross. And so we're called to picture the cross of Christ. Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood spilled for you. So we need to imagine in our minds when we take communion the cross of Christ. And we, we take our sins to the cross of Christ. And we, 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 we reenact the grace that we've, we've already been given. When you um, give the Pledge of Allegiance, you know, not everyone does it like this, but at least the way, you know, I was taught by my dad, you give the Pledge of Allegiance, you stand up straight, you put your hand over your heart, and you show respect. It's not like, like, when communion elements, the bread and the cup, are passed around, that is the symbol divinely authorized by Jesus himself, symbolic representation of him to you. When the communion elements go around, it's Christ himself saying, that's my symbol. So when you see an American flag, you stand up straight and you pledge your allegiance, and that's to a country. When the symbol of Christ comes around, you posture correctly. You stand up straight. You show your respect. Because that, that symbol represents the reality of God and his sacrifice on your behalf. And when you sin against the bread and the cup, you don't sin against mere cracker. You sin against Christ. Now, oftentimes uh, in and we all get this, like, there's worship songs that people like more than others, and sometimes people, like, you say, hey, I didn't really get anything out of the sermon today, or worship wasn't that awesome, or anything like that. And that's all fine. We can have critiques of, like, worship-style songs and, and sermons. But when you come to church, first and foremost, you are not going 
to get something out of music, and you're not going to get something out of a sermon. I mean, those are good things you need to. But when you come together as the corporate body of believers, you're coming together to corporately, as the family of God, experience the presence of God Himself. And it's represented powerfully, symbolically, in communion. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood spilled for you. It means something. It matters. So this is what we're going to do. One, we're going to try to start taking communion more often here. Um, We've been doing it once a month. We're going to try to do more of it. Um, Secondly, I'd like us today to sort of model what this reframing looks like. Communion is remembering, it is confessional, and it is pledging of allegiance. So what I'd like everyone to do is I'm going to give everyone a few minutes of silence, and I want you to confess your sins to God. Maybe they're just of the past week, but because Christians don't often practice confession, like telling God your sins, uh, you you may have a few months built up. You're not doing this to get saved or anything like that. It's like a renewal of wedding vows. Lord, forgive me of these sins. You know what they are. The beauty of God knowing what they are is you don't have to rationalize or just kind of try to justify. You know when you you tell your mistakes to someone, especially someone that you loved and that you hurt, you try to rationalize? There's no rationalization with God. You just say, here they are. You know them. You know my weaknesses. Forgive me. And then you need to picture in your head like God standing as the divine judge of heaven and earth. And as you confess, you receive nothing but grace and forgiveness. I don't hold that against you. So take a few moments and reflect and take your sins to Jesus. For some of you, you're able to give certain sins to to the Lord in this time. And some of you, you're you're holding on on to some things. You know know what I'm talking about, like the deep, dark, dirty stuff that you've buried away in the closet that people don't know about, the stuff you have shame about. I'm talking about those sins too. You give them to the Lord right now. You hand them over. If you are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation no condemnation, none. He takes the weight of that sin from you. He nails it to the cross. You don't carry that any longer. You give it to him. It's not yours. It doesn't belong to you any longer. The ushers pass forward the communion elements.
you confess, and you receive grace. And as you remember the cross, you realize what Christ has done for you. And so as the elements are getting passed around, no, they are just a symbol, but symbols that stand in place for the reality of God. It is spiritual food for your soul. When we take it, it's a way of, again, confessing, remembering, and then it's our ongoing pledging of allegiance. You say, Lord, I will proclaim your death and resurrection until you return, even when it's difficult, even when it's hard, I proclaim it. Even if this generation turns against you, I will not. Even if the whole culture turns against you, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to stay true. And in you saying that, it's not like, you know, you're saying, well, I'm such a good Christian, uh, I'm always going to be faithful. On your wedding day, when you make those vows, you know you're not going to be the perfect husband or wife. You're going to mess up. But the vows function as a glue to keep your feet planted where they should be. And that's what this does. So, something different that I'd like us to maybe start doing is as you have the elements in your hand, know that they stand in place for your king. So, please stand. When the king's symbol is in the room, We stand. We show respect. Paul tells us this. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. We're going to turn from a time where you feel the weight and the gravity and the symbolic significance, and now in turn, we are gonna celebrate what those symbols represented. They represented Christ the King dying on your behalf, resurrecting in power and glory, and giving the promise that he will return to right the world of its wrongs. And so, we stand planted with our feet on the death and resurrection of Jesus, and we fix our eyes to the future for his return, and that's cause in the present to rejoice and worship your king. Father God, we thank you for your son. We thank you for his presence. We thank you that um, you've promised to never leave nor forsake us, and if we are in Christ, there is no condemnation. 
And so out of the great forgiveness that we've received, we turn in worship to you and we celebrate you, Lord. You are a good God and we look and long for your return. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.
prayer team is going to be up. If, if you need to confess sin to someone else, not because they forgive you, but because you need, you need to get it out of you. You need to express it to someone else. You could come up to one of them. They could pray for you, remind you of God's grace and goodness in your life. Um, other than that, go knowing the King goes with you today. Amen.